And Father, just pray that we would daily, Lord, look at the life that you've given us to live and and see your goodness, Lord, in it. We have so much. You provide so well for for all of us, all the things that we need, all the food that we need to eat, uh, decent and reasonable places to live in, transportation to get from one place to the other, electricity, Lord, at the flick of a switch. Lord, help us not to take these things for granted. Remind us daily that there are people in the world that have never, ever once had any of those things uh, to the measure that we have. Uh, Lord, it's so easy for us to gripe and complain. Uh, But, Lord, we have so little truly to gripe and complain about. You've gifted us so greatly in just unimaginable ways into unbelievable measure. So we come this morning, Father, with thankful hearts to you uh, and pray, Lord, that we again would not take you for granted that these things, that in these things that we would see your hand at work in our lives and we would praise you and thank you, Father, continually for these very great gifts. We thank you most of all for the gift of salvation. We know, Lord, that it comes upon us not because we've earned it or deserved it in any way, shape, or form, but simply because you're a gracious and loving God who bestows upon us that which we're not deserving of, Lord, that's which we have not earned in any way, shape, or form, and you freely give it to us at very cost to yourself, very great cost to yourself. Remind us of grace continually. Remind us to preach the gospel to ourselves continually. And Father, we want to lift uh, this morning, Lynn Highly, before your throne of grace. We know, Lord, that this is probably the most difficult time that, that Lynn has ever lived in and lived through. We know, Lord, that there is a humongous void left in her life at this point. We can understand that. We can appreciate that. And we just pray, Lord, that you, through us, would reach out to her with great loving kindness and that we would wrap our arms around her uh, and just continue to love her, Father, and help her through all of this. We pray for Danny as well. For most of us, uh, our parents have died when we have gotten older ourselves. Uh, But Danny's just uh, uh, in his 20s, and uh, now his father is gone. And we know that because he is an only child, that, uh, that, that creates even greater difficulties. Uh, and so we just pray for them as a family, again, that your grace would abound and that you would bless them. And thank you, Father, for all the family members that came from very great distances, some of them, to be here on Friday. It was a real blessing for Lynn uh, and for the rest of us as well. Uh, Father, we do want to pray a prayer this morning for Julia, just asking, Lord, that your hand, uh, the hand of the great physician would fall upon her and bring healing to her from this illness she, she has. We thank you, Father, for the good news about Mary, that, uh, that she's getting better. And uh, we know, Lord, that is because of your hand. Uh, and we thank you for that. 
We do want to pray, Lord, for all of those in Greece that are suffering from these wildfires. Uh, it's a place that's kind of removed from us. And, and, and for myself, Lord, I hadn't even heard anything about this at all. Uh, but, Lord, we understand that, uh, that even things like this do not come apart from your perfect will and purpose. And, Father, pray that we would be reminded and remember that you really do have a reason and a purpose in all of this. And pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in that distant land that you would help them to see your purpose in it. Uh, uh, and, and, Father, just pray that as the world uh, looks uh, upon this nation, that uh, it would do so with great mercy and kindness and compassion, and that there would be just a great outpouring of resources into uh, this once very important part of the world. Today, I think it's followed uh, into more... Uh, less of an important place, but one time, Father, very, very important uh, in, in this part of the world. So again, we just thank you when we praise you. We pray, Lord, now that as we open up a, perhaps the most difficult passage in all of Revelation this morning, one that has certainly shown itself to be the most controversial of all, that you would bless us, Lord, with... Uh, with knowledge and understanding, Lord, that you would help us to come away from this with the things that we really need to know. Help us, Lord, to discern what is really important and what is more peripheral, what is the central, what are the central things in this particular passage that we need to walk away from. Let us not lose the important central things because of the little things that fall on the periphery that serve to take our attention away from those things, perhaps more than anything else. Uh, we confess, Lord, our need for you, from you to understand these scriptures. Uh, we know, Lord, that the Bible is not just a book. It is a book that you have written, that you've authored. But, Lord, we know that just sitting and reading the Bible is not enough. You know, your spirit must enlighten us. And so we just pray humbly this morning, Lord, that as we open up your word, that your spirit would truly enlighten us to the truth that it reveals to us. And we would take that, Lord, and we would apply it to the manner in which we live our lives, that the word of God would be real for us, that it would be living and breathing, and that we would actually endeavor to live it to the best of our abilities. We pray as well, Lord, that this time would be used most of all for your greatness and for your glory. Uh, but again, impart to us real knowledge, Lord, knowledge that doesn't flee from us very rapidly, but sticks with us, uh, that we would be better able to share what we know with other people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We are getting close to the end of this glorious book of Revelation. It is vastly more understandable to me, I think, now than it ever has been. Uh, it could very well become one of my most favorite books in the whole Bible. <laughs> now, John is number one, and Hebrews is probably number two, but right now Revelation is number three, and it's gaining ground all the time, I think. Uh, we have really enjoyed this series that we've been working on now for a little bit over a year. As I was praying this morning, you heard me say that this, is, this passage that we come to is very controversial, uh, it really is. It, uh, 
has not always been so much so. As a matter of fact, it doesn't seem as though there was much conversation about it, uh, hardly at all, in the very beginning of the church in, in Asia Minor and other places. We don't have a lot of record of that sort of thing taking place, but it's something that has gra- really grabbed a hold of many people in the church today. It's a very great focal point in certain circles of the church. Uh, so just, uh, I want to try to work through all of the stuff and make this as simple for us as it possibly can be. Uh, one of the things I think uh, as we study eschatology, that's what we're studying here, one of the problems I think today is this, is people bring so many details into the picture that it's very easy to get lost in the details and forget what the central focus and the, 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 the real particular meaning happens to be in some of these texts. Now, you have an outline that I've given you to help you make some discernment and understanding about what these different views of this particular chapter happen to be. And uh, I'm going to go through those and speak to their positives, and they all have their positives, actually, that at the same time, they all have their downside as well. And I just want to say this before I I'd go any further, and that is this, is the people that scare me when it comes to eschatology are the people who believe they have all of their I's dotted and all of their T's crossed. They have an answer to absolute any, every, and any question that someone might have. We need to remember that these things, this book, as we've seen, is clothed in mystery. I mean, there are things that we can grab hold of, things that we can clearly understand in all of that. But no one has figured out the book of Revelation absolutely, completely, totally. We always have to keep the main focus in the picture. And there are two aspects to that. One of those is this, is the greatness and the glory and the victory of God and the establishment eventually of the new heavens and the new earth is eternal kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And at the same time, there's also this very great message that comes from the book that we really has been the focus of the last few chapters, and that is the judgment of God that is going to fall upon this world and the godless people very often who live here. Okay, so chapter 20, we're not going to read a whole lot this morning, but we'll read through a few verses. And I saw uh, an angel coming down from heaven and having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. See, this is the issue, a thousand years. You've heard of the millennial kingdom. Okay, that's, this is where it comes from. You know, a lot of this talk that goes on today in regard to eschatology. It all is founded in this particular chapter. There's not a lot of the rest of Scripture that speaks to these things. But we have to remember this. Our understanding of everything in the Bible has to come from our overall understanding of everything that's in the Bible. Not just one or two verses or one or two chapters taken out of context. If we really want to understand what God is telling us, we have to put things in the the, the balance of Scripture. Remember that. Scripture interprets Scripture. Our approach to understanding what we've just read has to be according to that. Let Scripture speak for itself. 
not people. People can't help us understand things. The scripture speaks to us. Okay. Verse 3 again, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And then they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed this is the first resurrection. And that's as far as we're going to go this morning. Because we're going to, it's going to take us a while just to unfold what we've already read. Uh, we're going to turn to that diagram in just a few minutes before we get there. Just a few comments I want to make. The, the passage here starts out with I saw. It's just a reminder, as we said before, that probably the best way to understand this book is to understand that it is a series of visions. And anytime you see this phrase, I saw, it very often is the opening of, of a new vision that Jesus has given to the Apostle John, that he's conveyed to those seven churches, first of all, and to us down through the generations. Just remember, John is seeing these things. It's not that God is just telling you these things. He's seeing these things in visual presentation. An angel coming down from heaven. That doesn't surprise us at all how many times that we've seen angels coming from heaven as we've gone through this book of Revelation. They are God's messengers uh, primarily, but that doesn't mean that he does not use them for other things. He has the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Well, we've talked about the abyss all the way back in chapter 9, it was introduced. Uh, and we understand that it's this, this place, it's called the abode of, of demons and evil spirits. If you think back to chapter 9, we're told there that Satan himself was given the key to the abyss. And if you'll remember this, that he opened it up and out came all of those helicopters. Or at least some, what some people call helicopters. Uh, but those odd creatures that went out upon the earth and brought, uh, brought havoc upon the people that lived on the earth that, uh, that had the mark of the beast. A great chain in his hand. Now, what do you use chains for? What do you use great chains for? I know some of you had chains around your neck and, and that sort of thing, but, but, but what's being conveyed here is you need to understand that this is a big, sturdy, strong chain. And it should say something to us. And what it says is this. Is this is the chain, basically, that is a picture of the binding of Satan that takes place here. And because a chain is necessary to do that, it should tell us something. That he's strong. That he's been given great power and he's been given great authority. And we've seen that expressed over and over again through the history of the world. Now, we understand this. 
that whatever power and authority that, that he has has is, is been granted to him by God. Just like God granted him power and authority for a time to some degree over Job. He's done the same thing with Satan as far as the world goes. That for a time he has given him power, he's given him authority, which is not absolute, just to a degree. Now, one of the big issues at, 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 at play here in this particular passage is this. Are these things still future? Or are some of these things, at least, already in place today? And one of the questions is this. Is this binding of Satan something that will take place in the future? Or is this binding of Satan something that has already happened? Some people would say that it is something future. Other people would say that there is a very real sense in which there was a binding of Satan that took place in the first coming of Christ. I would even go beyond that, and I would tell you there was a binding that took place even before that. Now, in other words, a time when God interdicted and in, in the authority and the power of Satan was greatly confined and limited. You think you could take that and maybe apply it to some degree when Satan rebelled in heaven against God himself and tried to push God off the throne? And we studied this in Revelation, that there was these battles between Michael the angel and the other angels against Satan, and he was cast down where? He was cast down from heaven down to the earth. So he's earthbound now. He doesn't go, he doesn't walk in the halls of heaven any longer. And hasn't for a very long time. Already a binding of Satan taking place there, limiting his influence, limiting his power, limiting his authority. The Son of Man, the Son of God, came into this world for a purpose. And part of that purpose was to do what? To bind the strong man. We need to understand something, that the world that Jesus came into is not as the world is that we live in today. That 2,000 years ago, things changed. It would be ridiculous for us to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world and lived there and did all of he did and just left the world in the same condition it was in before he came. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, his own words, talks about binding the strong man. So we have to all all understand this, that at least in some way, that the strong man has been bound by Christ already. So there has been a binding that has taken place. A limiting of the power and the authority of the evil one.
bound for a thousand years. This is where this diagram comes into place. Okay. (laughs) There are a number of different views of what actually constitutes what's called the millennial kingdom, that kingdom for a thousand years. Okay. I just want to say to you this morning that I love the PCA for a lot of reasons, and one of those is this, is that when we can, we can give people theological ground on things, we do that. When we don't believe that we can, we don't. What you're going to find is there are four fundamental views of what this, this millennial kingdom actually constitutes. And you're going to find that every one of them has some degree of biblical support for them. And you'll find that as you look through the theology books and you look through the history of the church, you're going to find that there were some very, very smart people that believed every one of these, possibly with one exception. And I love the PCA for a lot of reasons, and that is this, is we give ground. This is an area that we give ground in because we understand that none of us have all of our eggs in the carton. That none of us have all of these things figured out. We're going to start out with what's called the amillennial view. And the reason I'm doing that is because that is the dominant, predominant view of reformed people. It always has been. Probably the earliest amillennialist would have been St. Augustine. The question here is this is are we supposed to interpret this passage in absolute literal terms or are we to understand that it is filled up with figures and symbols? This is what we found over and over again in the whole book of Revelation. That there are all kinds of signs and symbols and unless we're told exactly what they represent, then we wouldn't even know. We wouldn't know. All the way back in the very beginning, John had this vision. He saw these seven lampstands, and unless Jesus told him that those lampstands represented the seven churches, John wouldn't have known. That's an area where we don't have to speculate on. What did God mean? What was represented by those seven lampstands? It was those seven churches in Asia Minor. But this book is filled with numbers and signs and symbols and etc. and etc. And we have to use very great caution in understanding these things literally when they're not meant to be taken literally. There are people who are waiting for a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth. Ten years. They're waiting for it to happen. Because they interpret this particular passage literally. Amillennial actually means no millennium. Let me tell you that it's very, very poor verbiage. I wish it went by another name. Because it doesn't literally mean that the people who believe it do not believe in a millennium. Every Christian must believe in a millennium of some sort, whether it's literal or whether it's figurative, right? 
The amillennial view, like I said before, is the prominent, predominant view you're going to find in PCA pastors. Now, we do accept to other positions. It's also the one that you would find that John Calvin had and Martin Luther had and, and pretty much all the reformers. They understood that this was one of those passages that we didn't take literally. We understand it to be representative of figurative language. The big distinction of all millennialism is this, is we understand the millennium, that there is a millennium, but it is a synonym for the church age. In other words, we are actually living in a millennium now. It's not this still future kingdom that's going to be established, that's going to exist on planet Earth for a thousand years. I mean, there's some things on here that we would all agree with. If you look at the, the diagram there for amillennialism, we understand that Christ came, right? Christ has come. No Christian is going to deny that Christ has come into the world already and that he lived and he died on the cross and he was resurrected and has ascended back into heaven, right? That's where it all starts, is with the ascension of Christ back into heaven. The church age basically represents that period of time between Christ's ascension and Christ's second coming. What we call the church age. We all understand as well that there is a tribulation. How do we under, why do we understand that? Because Scripture teaches it. That there's a period of a tribulation coming. Uh, and if you take it uh, from Scripture at its face value, it's only the, 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 the term great tribulation only appears twice in Scripture. Once in Revelation and once in the Olivet Discourse. It is a time of great trouble on earth. But see, one of the issues that is created here with the, with the disagreement is this, is are believers in the world at the time of that tribulation, are they not? Now, if you look at the Olivet Discourse, and you need to understand the Olivet Discourse, there are things in the Olivet Discourse that very clearly were fulfilled in 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. But at the same time, there is great reason in that Olivet Discourse to have this sense that it's a, it's a picture of something even greater coming later. And that's where Jesus talks about the Great Tribulation. And from the Olivet Discourse, very clearly, there's no doubt about it, there are believers in the world enduring the tribulation right along with everybody else. Some of the elect are there. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that the time of it is decreased for the sake of the elect, which tells you what? They're there suffering right along with other people. Then directly after the tribulation... Christ returns. That's what we call the second advent, which ushers in a series of other events, the first one being the universal resurrection, that everyone that's ever lived is resurrected. We need to understand this, too, that when Jesus comes back, he brings with him the saints who are with him in heaven. 
Dave Hiley's soul will come back. With Jesus. If Jesus came today, Dave Hiley's soul would come back with him. And we're told in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the very best passage in all of Scripture to look at, to get an idea of, of, of these things we're talking about. If you're not familiar with 1 Thessalonians 4, you need to read it. What that is speaking about, what Paul is speaking about, is the second coming of Christ and the things that happen that accompany that. And the order that Paul laid down there, the first thing that happens when Christ comes back is there's this universal resurrection. Now, you would find this. Some people say that, well, you don't believe in a rapture. You need to understand something. Rapture is not even a word that you find in the Bible to start with. The, the principle of the rapture, however, is. And where is it found? It's found in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 4. The whole issue going on in Thessalonica was this, is people were concerned about their loved ones who had died. Were they gone forever? Was there no hope left for them? They have fallen asleep. Just a, a, an analogy that has to do with death. But what Paul says there is this. Is that when Christ returns with a shout... See, this is one of the things that we're going to get to in a few minutes. One of the other views, the view that we don't accept is this, is it requires Christ to come two times. One time secretly and the other time very much publicly, which we find no basis for in Scripture at all. The strange thing about it is this is one of the passages that they want to use to prove their, their understanding of things. But the first thing that happens, Jesus appears, he brings the spirits, and and the bodies of those he brings with him are resurrected. And he gathers his people together that are living in the world at that time, and they are raised up in the air to meet him. And the Bible really just teaches that we will be lifted up into the air, into the clouds, and we will meet Jesus in the clouds. Why does that happen? Well, it happens for a number of reasons. One of those is to really identify those people who are truly Christ and to set them apart. So that they, they've gone through the, the tribulation, just remember that, some of them. But they will not go through the period of wrath. That what God does is he, he takes his people out of this world when he pours his wrath out upon the ungodliness of this world and all of the ungodly people who bear the mark of the beast. He takes this up into the air to protect us from himself. So there's this universal resurrection. And that's not just believers, but unbelievers as well. The saints will be raptured up into the air to meet the Lord and be there with him. God's wrath will be poured out. Satan will be finally and and completely defeated. 
followed by judgment, and then after that, eternity. That is the all-millennial view. And that's based upon not only what you find here, but based upon what we find in the rest of Scripture. One of the charges that would be leveled against all millennials is you're trying to spiritualize things that are meant to be taken literally. That's a very, very common accusation brought against all millennial people. Uh, But again, we're talking about the book of Revelation. It's filled up with signs and symbols and numbers and all those kinds of things, some of which we understand perfectly because the book reveals to us exactly what they mean. But many of them know. Okay? The next one we're going to talk about is what's called premillennialism. And, 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 and this says dispensational here. You need to understand there's two flavors of premillennialism. Uh, premillennialism is a strict, literal understanding of these things. In other words, it takes the thousand years literally. Okay? It is called premillennial uh, because some things take place before the millennial kingdom is established on earth. Now, I'm going to talk about this and say you need to understand something. The other flavor of it is what's called historic premillennialism. Some of the earliest church fathers... You've heard of Justin Martyr. You've heard of Irenaeus. They were premillennialists. That is what we call historic premill. So if you're talking about historic premill, you would find it. The diagram I laid out there for dispensational premill would be identical except for one thing. The difference is this. With historic premill... There is no resurrection and rapture of the saints before the great tribulation. The hallmark of dispensational premillennialism is this idea that there will be a rapture of the saints immediately preceding the great tribulation. One of the arguments against it is this, is there is absolutely no historical evidence that anyone ever believed this or ever even thought about this until 1830-something. There are no church fathers who have this position. There were no Bible scholars or anything like that until 200 years ago who ever thought about the possibility of something like this. Now, you know me, and you, you understand that my perspective is this, is Scripture speaks for Scripture, but does history sometimes have some part of the picture? And I would say, yes, it does. That we need to listen. We need to see how the rest of the church looked upon these things, how the church before us understood these things to be before we jettison those things completely and adapt something totally new. Because let me tell you, when we start adapting things that are totally new, what we're saying there is this, is for some reason God's enlightened us in ways that he never enlightened the church before. We're special. He's telling us more than he told other people in the past. 
Some people call dispensational pre-mill the theology of wishful thinking. The people do not want to go through the tribulation. I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound particularly appealing to me. Does anybody want to go through the tribulation? But let me tell you, from the, from the text, from all of it, discourse, believers are in the world during the tribulation. You can't deny it. It's there. They're there. See, I think this is one of the areas where this whole doctrine thing has really done a disservice to the church, and that is this. That has presented the great tribulation in a manner that doesn't apply. What I would tell you is this. Is a great tribulation more than anything else is a period of time when the intensity of the persecution of the church increases. Not that the church is whisked away and gone from it. Persecution of the church has been going on now since the Garden of Eden. Why would we think there would come a time when all of a sudden it would stop? Until Christ comes back. Now certainly it will stop when Christ comes back. But why would we think that there would be a period of time when all of a sudden the persecution of the church would just stop? For a literal thousand years. Or not for a thousand years, but for the seven years. Because they come up with seven years of tribulation. The great tribulation is supposed to last for seven years. Notice here this. that It requires Christ coming twice. In a sense. For which you find no basis for in Scripture at all. The Scriptures teach about Christ coming once and one time only, not numerous times. And this is an area where you get into deceiving some disagreement amongst pre, uh, dispensational pre-mill people, and that is what happens during the interim. Now, Jesus comes, he raptures the saints out of the world, the tribulation falls upon the world for seven years. Some would say that, well, Jesus and the people are just there in the clouds for seven years. Others would say, well, they go back to heaven for seven years. And then they come again at the very the, the second coming of Christ, the, the second advent. Uh, okay. So Christ returns. We had the church age and then the, the rapture that takes place immediately before the great tribulation. Then you have Christ returning, and when Christ returns, he will set up, in their view, a literal thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. The temple will be rebuilt, animal sacrifices will be reinstituted, etc., etc., etc. It is a strict, literal understanding of what we find here in a book that very often is not meant to be taken literal. Most Christians, I think, would have an issue with that. We actually had a rabbi come many years ago to, to, to Sunday school one Sunday and he, to, to, to teach us about the Passover. 
And it was really informative. We learned a lot from it. But one of the things that really was offensive to me was this man, this Messianic Jewish rabbi, was encouraging Gentile believers to celebrate Passover. And what was the focal point of Passover? The sacrifice of a lamb. In other words, what, 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 what were, and, and, and that was a picture of the sacrifice of Christ that was coming, right? So what he was doing was encouraging Christians to continue to practice the sacrifice of a lamb rather than acknowledging that the true lamb has come. It's a done deal. There is no reason to do that any longer. It's gone. It's over. It's done. It's hard to imagine really why God would do this, why Jesus would do this, set up this kingdom. Well, and you need to understand something, too. There's a real focus upon Israel. And what they would say would be things like this, that during this millennium, and part of it is this, is to bring Israel back home. That what you would see would be, the, would, be, would be mass conversions of Jewish people to Christianity during that period of time. I would say that that whole concept, to some degree, is anti-New Testament. I don't know how you can come to that conclusion without ripping Ephesians chapter 2 out of your Bible. Because the focus of the New Testament is this. Is this no longer the Jews separated from the Gentiles? It is one body under one God, under one Christ, Jew and Gentile together. Full and complete and absolute citizens both in the very same kingdom. It continues to divide the people of God when Jesus has brought the people of God together. And with this scheme of thought, after the, the, that 1,000 literal 1,000-year reign of Christ physically in Jerusalem, well, you can understand that in the early 1900s, there were some things that took place that really seemed to, to, to jettison this whole concept. The reestablishment of the nation of Israel. That started back in the 1830s. And it began to, to gain ground and, and, and all that. And by the 1900s, there was this, this, this guy named Schofield who published the Schofield Reference Bible that was dispensational. It presented all this stuff. And it really took off. People began to buy into it, and, and, and the momentum, it, it probably affected American Christianity more than any place else in the whole world. Is that if you ask the average Christian in the United States today about these things, what you would find, what they would tell you would be the premillennial perspective on things. But let me tell you, for the first 1,900 years of the church, if anyone told you these things, they, they would look at you like you were crazy. 
but it became very popular. And it laid hold of conservative Christianity in the United States. Today, you'll be hard-pressed to find many Southern Baptist churches and many charismatic churches that are not pre-tribulational. But you need to understand that for most of the history of the church, that has not been true. After the millennial kingdom, then Satan is loosed and finally defeated. And you're going to find, you find that there are some things that we have in commonality with each other. Uh, but then it goes into eternity. But just, just notice here that this is the complicated one. I mean, it has all kinds of facets and this, that, and the other that are stuck in here. It's hard to even think through all of it. I mean, it really, really is. If, you've, if you're familiar with dispensationalism, some of the charts and things that they have, they will just blow your mind. They're so complicated, you wonder how anybody can understand what is even being depicted here. You need to understand, I've taken things and tried to make them as simple here as I can for you to give you the kind of information that you need to be able to decide for yourself. The last view that we want, I want to mention this one. This is an important one, too. This is what's called called post-millennialism. It's on the back. The earliest evidence we have of the viewpoint of people, of church fathers, is this view. As a matter of fact, Augustine initially was post-mill, and only later did he decide there were some fallacies in it, and he developed more of an amillennial view. It was the view of some more modern-day people who were very knowledgeable. The Puritans, John Owen and Jonathan Edwards, they were post-millennialists. Their distinctive is this. You'd find it's very similar to amillennialism as far as everything goes, except for one thing. They don't believe the millennium is just a, is, is the church age. They believe that it is a period of time that takes place near the end of the church age where there will be mass conversions of people to Christianity, both Jews and Gentiles. To the point that if you carry it far enough, there are some of these guys really believe this, that you would essentially get almost to the point that the world would be Christianized. In other words, the vast majority of people that are living in the world at the time of the millennium would become believers, and only a few left on the outside. More recent days, this was the viewpoint of B.B. Warfield, if you've ever heard of him, and, and also the Hodge brothers at, at Princeton with B.B. Warfield. Lorraine Bettner was a post-millennial person. Abraham Kuyper was. I should bring that to your attention so you understand that these are, these are people that we would, we would recognize as being ex- exceptionally brilliant, smart 
people who love the Lord with all of their heart, mind, and soul, and strength. There are scriptures that encourage you. Let me just say that all of these have some degree of scripture warrant behind them, except for one, I'd say out of all of this, there's one thing that does not, and that is a pre-trip rapture. There is no scriptural proof for it. That every facet of every one of these other, and that, that one too, you'll find some biblical ground for. Do you understand that is why in the PCA we will accept historic pre-mill. We will accept post-millennialism. We will accept amillennialism because there is biblical argument for every one of those. If you went into the OPC, you know what? In the OPC, they have an official position, and that is amillennialism. You cannot be a pastor in the OPC or the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church if you don't believe in amillennialism. That's not the official position of the PCA, even though you'd find the vast majority of PCA teaching elders are amillennials. It's one of those areas, and I love the PCA because we we understand that there are boundaries that have to be drawn. They have to be drawn by Scripture. We can't step beyond it. If you want me to believe there's a pre-trib rapture, use Scripture to prove it to me. And let me tell you, I've spoken to a lot of people, and they've tried to, and they can't do it. All of the things that they bring up are more easily explained by applying them more to an amillennial or postmillennial view. We find all the other aspects of postmillennialism to be very much like amillennialism. The only place we differ really is what exactly is the millennium. Is it the whole church age or just a special heightened time of conversion that takes place near the end of it? But the kingdom parables, the parable of the mustard seed, starts out little and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, there's all kinds of biblical arguments for a post-mill view. I don't think people that have a post-mill view are whack jobs. I don't. They have some ground for arguing their position. Let me tell you, I have talked to dispensational premillennialists, and I've said, tell me, show me where it is, and they'll come up with, well, once you see it, it's all over the place. I've had people tell me that. It's one of those things that's just kind of mysterious, but once you see it, it's there and it's everywhere in the Bible. So what are we supposed to take away from all of this? Let me just tell you, we need to get back to fundamentals, and fundamentals are this. As we live in a time that lies between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and he has given us the Great Commission, 
We're supposed to be about our Father's business, and part of that Father's business is telling everybody that we can about the gospel. We know that Jesus is coming back, right? And we know that when Jesus is coming back, that he's bringing the souls of those who have died in the meantime that are his, that are in heaven with him right now. He's going to bring them back. They're going to be reunited with their bodies in the resurrection. There are going to be believers living during the time when Jesus does come back. They're going to be gathered together. There's no need for them to be resurrected. They're still in their bodies. That they'll be joined together with a group of those who are resurrected to life. But we know there's another side of it too, and that is this. Is that the spirits of those who are not of Christ, their spirits right now are in hell. They're also going to be reunited with their bodies. And we're going to see this in this chapter. They're going to be cast into the eternal lake of fire and brimstone. God's judgment, God's final judgment on them. Christ's kingdom, the new Jerusalem, will descend out of heaven. The city of God, like we've talked about, will be established on earth. If you're a believer, your eternal home is the earth. It's not heaven. You're not going to become an angel. You're not going to have wings. Well, maybe. Some of you. But we will live here on earth. And you need to understand what what it all comes down to is this. is what God is going to do in the end is he's going to return the earth back to paradise. He's going to cleanse it of all the corruption and all the dirtiness and all the awfulness that man has inflicted it with. And we will live with him in that paradise on earth with our king. Not in a millennial kingdom, an eternal kingdom. It will have no end. Well, I don't know if that helps you guys or not. It may have muddied the water a lot more for you and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Some, some of you may be upset with me now because it's very, I understand that for some of you, a lot of this is very contrary to what you've been taught all of your life. But Jesus is coming back. When? Only he knows. Only God knows. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. In the meantime, does he have anything for us to be doing? Yeah. To live in our life to the full for him. I pray for all of us that every day that by the time we lay our head down on the pillow at night to go to sleep, we can with confidence say that I have truly been about my father's business and everything I, and the things I've done today.
Christ is central to everything. Everything else revolves around him. His kingdom is already established in you. His rule is over you. And it's important for us to live it daily. Amen. We will move on from here next week.